Welcome to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular Continuing Medical Education Podcast. Join us each week to discuss the most pressing topics in cardiology and gain valuable insights that can be directly applied to your practice. Hello, my name is Paul Friedman, Chair of the Department of Cardiovascular Medicine, and I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Dr. Myra Guerrero, in the Division of Interventional Cardiology. She's a professor of medicine and an associate program director in our fellowship program. Myra, thank you so much for joining me today. No, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Today, we'll be talking about transcatheter mitral valve replacement, really an area that you've been pioneering and spearheading. So why don't we just start with the basics? What is it? Thank you. Well, transcatheter mitral valve replacement is a minimally invasive procedure that allows physicians to replace the mitral valve without the need for standard open uh, heart surgery. So it is less invasive. Uh, it's basically a stent, and inside of the stent is a new valve. And we place the stent inside of the mitral valve uh, using a small plastic tube that we call catheter. And through that plastic tube, we uh, introduce the stent to be delivered in the mitral valve. Is this done with a person under general anesthesia? Are they awake, asleep? There are usually a couple of ways of doing this. We can place the catheter, the delivery catheter, through a small incision in between the ribs. The other way is uh, we place the catheter in a vein in the femoral area, in the femoral, uh, in the groin area. And yes, it is usually done under general anesthesia. Not necessarily in the OR, when we do it from the groin, it can be done in the cath lab and uh, the patient wakes up at the end of the procedure. So you described two approaches, transfemoral and transapical, or the one with the in incision between the ribs being transapical versus transfemoral. When do you choose one versus the other? It's the type of the device. Uh, some devices require the transapical axis and some uh, already evolved to transfemoral axis. At the beginning, most of them were transapical because of the size of the prosthesis. It's large enough that requires a larger diameter catheter, which is harder to be um, introduced in a femoral vein versus a transapical axis. Uh, but some of those valves are, have already evolved to the transfemoral axis. So it, it's device dependent, basically. And uh, so what are the main differences between transcatheter versus uh, standard mitral surgery? Well, for the patient, is the recovery time is much easier and faster after a minimally invasive procedure compared with uh, open heart surgery. And uh, the risk may be also significantly lower because it's uh, less invasive. So lower risk and faster recovery. What about valve type, valve reliability, valve durability? Any differences there? Yes, and uh, it's not known yet. Uh, this field, uh, it's uh, relatively young compared with uh, TAVR or other technologies. So we don't have all the answers. We don't know yet uh, in terms of durability. However, there is limited data on, on transcatheter valves uh, out to six years post-implant, and the valves uh, perform well even six years after. We don't know what would happen on year 10 or year 20, but we do know that we can usually fix those with another transcatheter mitral valve, and most likely with transfemoral axis. Is this approved in the United States? Well, this is a great question. It's uh, the only approval that we have in the US is for mitral valve in valve. So we use an aortic transcatheter valve to replace a mitral valve. But uh, for the uh, dedicated mitral transcatheter valves, the dedicated devices, 
None of them are approved in the US as of yet. They're only approved under clinical trials. So it is our hope that as soon as we finish these clinical trials and the data becomes available, we may see approval in the near future in the United States, which was the case in Europe where it has been approved at least one device since January of 2020. Who's a candidate? Who, who are the best people to undergo this treatment? But currently, it's patients who have high risk of complications for standard open heart surgery, uh, many of those patients would be a candidate for transcatheter mitral valve replacement in a clinical trial if the anatomy is favorable. Uh, the problem is that not every patient has favorable anatomy. We would have to start with a CAT scan, do some measurements, and see if we have the device and the size that that particular patient needs. So about half of the patients may not qualify uh, due to challenging anatomy. Uh, we hope that with newer devices, that number can improve in the future. But we can start with surgical risk. If surgical risk is high, then we, we could initiate that evaluation. How does a doctor or patient begin the process of evaluation to see if it's needed or an option? Mm -hmm. Well, at our center, I think the best uh, initial step would be an evaluation in the VAL clinic. And then from there, we can talk to the patient about the multiple options. I have to emphasize as multiple options, there are already three devices that we, um, that we can offer depending on, on anatomy or the patient's needs. And we can talk to the patients about those options, uh, obtain the CT scan and see which option would be best for that particular patient. Now there's valve replacement and then there's valve repair and catheter devices that approximate a valve repair. Do you wanna comment on that a little bit for us? Yes, uh, transcatheter repair is also an option, and uh, there are already randomized trials evaluating devices comparing with the, uh, with the mitra clip, which is the one that we had had for several years. Patients may actually uh, qualify for either repair or replacement, and sometimes it's challenging because they, they qualify for both. So we talked to the patient about the the pros and the cons of each of the options. For example, for replacement, a patient would need long-term anticoagulation or at least for six months, but perhaps even longer versus with a repair, uh, long-term anticoagulation is not needed. So we would talk about all those details with the patient and family members and let them choose which path they would like to pursue if they are candidates for both. So you mentioned MitraClip, maybe um, say a few words about what it is and uh, you know who, who's a candidate for that and how it differs in replacing a valve. Yes, so MitraClip is a device that allows us to repair uh, the mitral valve without, mitral, without surgery. We use a small plastic tube. Again, it's, it's transfemoral transvenous. We use a vein in the groin area. Most patients go home the following day. It's a repair, it's not a replacement. We can significantly improve the severity of the mitral regurgitation. However, it doesn't completely eliminate regurgitation versus a replacement, you obtain better results in terms of reduction of the amount of residual mitral regurgitation. So it may be more effective immediately, but it's more involved. So the mitral clip, of course, is just putting a clip between loose leaflets to hold them together like an alfieri stitch, as opposed to replacing the whole valve. Correct. It's basically to approximate and get the anterior and posterior leaflet closer to decrease the amount of regurgitation. And then for uh, physicians listening, if you're not uh, an invasive cardiologist, your patient has just had a uh, transcatheter mitral valve replacement. 
What should you check? What should you watch for? What are complications? What medications will they need? How do you manage them effectively? Post-procedure, we usually like to obtain an echocardiogram in about uh, one month in a clinic visit. We would like to evaluate symptoms and obviously physical exam as well, looking for um, murmur and amount of evidence of fluid retention, edema, and make sure the lungs are clear. But on echocardiogram, uh, we would like to evaluate several parameters, the amount of residual regurgitation, any, any stenosis, any increased gradient, any change in left ventricular function or right ventricular function. Some of these procedures leave behind uh, septostomy, meaning iatrogenic atrial septal defect. And we need to evaluate the amount of shunt and how the right ventricle is handling that excess of, uh, of uh, flow. Sometimes that can be decreased um, RV function. So we always uh, check for that as well. Do you expect that uh, hole in the intraatrial septum from the transeptal puncture of managing the valve to close on its own? Do you ever have to close them with a plug? That is a question uh, for which no one has a, uh, an answer yet. The limited data that we have indicates that there's no need to close those most of the times. Uh, they tend to close on their own. And the only study that compare uh, closure versus no closure found no difference. So as of today, we don't have any evidence to suggest that we should close those septostomies. We just keep uh, an eye on the septal defect and function of the right ventricle, as well as any potential hypoxemia. So there are very there are only a couple of, of reasons or clinical reasons to close, and we usually would know those before the patient leaves the hospital. Dr. Mario Guerrero, thank you for joining me. It's been a very interesting session. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Thank you for joining us today. Feel free to share your thoughts and suggestions about the podcast by emailing cvselfstudy at mayo.edu. Be sure to subscribe to the Mayo Clinic Cardiovascular CME podcast on your favorite platform and tune in each week to explore today's most pressing cardiology topics with your colleagues at Mayo Clinic. This has been a Mayo Clinic podcast.